Well, what a delight. Today in the Reading Corner, I'm joined by Anthony Horowitz, and it's very exciting because we have a new Diamond Brothers mystery. Of course, Anthony is incredibly well known for his Alex Ryder series and indeed for his television writing, uh, but I was particularly pleased to see where seagulls dare plop through my email box, and I can't wait to talk to you about it, Anthony. Um, maybe we should start actually by uh, telling listeners a little bit about the story. So Tim Diamond and Nick Diamond are, are obviously brothers. Tim Diamond is about 25. He's a detective and an incredibly bad detective, the most stupid detective in the world, who only solves uh, his cases because he has a 14 or 15 year old brother. I can never remember his age. Um, I've been writing about him for so long, he must have aged a bit. But anyway, Nick Diamond is the smart one in the team. And they've had lots and lots of adventures, which are all incidentally based on films. That's where they always mm-hmm. start. So the very first one was called The Falcon's Malteser, which was a send-up of my favourite film, The Maltese Falcon. And I did one later on called South by Southeast, which took all of Hitchcock, North by Northwest. And now we're in Alistair McLean territory with a book called Where Seagulls Dare, one of the greatest action films ever made, in my view, Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. And in this story, they are hired by a woman calling herself Jane Nightingale, who may not be what she seems, to find her father, who has possibly been kidnapped. And this brings them to the attention of a far-right political group with headquarters on an island in Scotland who are planning to take over the entire country. And, you know, I actually re-watched the film before I started writing the book. It's a wonderful adventure. It's so clever and so convoluted. And it did inform the plot of this book. But but obviously, you know, you can't write a book set in Nazi Germany because that doesn't exist anymore, thank heaven. Uh, so I invented instead a gang of neo-Nazis. They were originally called neo-Nazis in the book when I sent it to my publishers. Mm. But they got a little worried about that term being sort of banded around in a, in a book of comedy. So I call them now the White Crusaders, which is sort of like a, they're a motorbike gang with Union Jacks fluttering everywhere. And this island, in the, book, in the film, it's all set on Bear Island. And the castle on Bear Island is called Eagle's Rise. And so I changed it to Hare Island and the castle is called Seagull's Rise. Um, But it still, you know, it still does have the same sort of, the film is very convoluted. Nobody is what they seem. You know, there are lots of double agents and triple agents and people pretending to be what they're not. And that carries into this story too. Yeah. And can I just say, you also pay reference to one of the female characters in the film called Heidi, and you have a Heidi, Heidi in your story. Heidi, turns up as a waitress in my book, of course. Yeah, there are loads of reference in there as actually a, sort of to, to different actors and people in there, some of them quite hidden in the text. But I still remember Heidi, who was, you know, of course, when the film was made, we had a different attitude to women then, and they and she is in the film a little bit of a sort of a bit part player. But um, but I, I, I wanted to remember her because I, I remembered her as a sort of a, as a sort of teen or 20-year-old myself. So that brings me to a point, really, about whether it is the film and playing around with the title that starts the story off for you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I remember I was in the bath, I think, about, gosh, it must have been 40 years ago when I just, for no reason at all, the words, the Falcon's Malteser popped into my head. I'd just been seeing the Maltese Falcon. I think I'd seen it at, uh, at a cinema about a week before. And I loved that film and I knew the book very well of it. So I, I suddenly had this title that just came out of nowhere. And I then had to think up a story that would have a falcon in it, a large bird, and a Malteser, a small chocolate. And so I had to make a story of it. And since then, it's been the fun of it. It's always been when I did 
studied South by Southeast for, for the Hitchcock, I had to try and work out what on earth could be in the story that would relate to those words. Um, the Blurred Man, um, that was, I think in the end it was, you know, that's the third man, my favorite film of all time, Carol Reed. Um, and, and, you know, that turned out to be about a photograph where the, the focus isn't right. And so, so that is part of the fun of inventing these books, is coming up with a completely ridiculous title and then trying to work a story around it. Hmm. And of course, a lot of that will be amusing yourself because we cannot expect our readers to know those films. So we might hope they might go and look for them. No, not at all, actually. I mean, the whole point of these jokes and gags and different things is that, first of all, I've always believed that children's books should also have an appeal for the adults who might Mm -hmm. be reading them with children. That is, could be teachers, parents. I used to read books with my kids. And I think it's perfectly acceptable for there to be jokes in the book which just fly way over the heads of kids. Mm -hmm. Actually, many people may not even know the Maltese Falcon, for example. Why should they? So the jokes are, to a certain extent, for adult readers. They're also for me. You know, at the end of the day, when I write these books, I want to have a laugh and I want to smile. And, and so as long as the action is there and the characters and the, the pace and the surprises and the, and the sort of twists and turns are in the story to keep kids occupied, plus, of course, loads and loads of jokes that they will get, then, mm. then I'm, I'm, I'm totally happy. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder whether we might have a reading to give us a flavour of the book and then yeah, I'll pick up from this that. A minute ago. So I just um, took a, a, a second to, to find a bit. Um, and this is a little sequence of quite early in the book where Tim and Nick have um, snuck into a house in Bath and as they're there searching it for clues, two really quite unpleasant crooks turn up uh, and with guns and they realise that they're not alone. We both heard it at the same time, a key turning in a lock. Somebody was opening the front door when there was a low murmuring as two men let themselves in. It was impossible to hear what they were saying, but somehow I already knew they meant trouble. I've met a lot of crooks in my time and they all talk the same way, spitting out the words like bullets. Many of them can't even say, good morning, how are you? Without it coming across like a death threat. These two sounded particularly unpleasant and they were heading further into the house. Okay, Tim put his finger to his lips and hissed. Whatever you do, Nick, don't make a sound. Right, I said. He took a step back, looking for somewhere to hide, and at that moment his elbow knocked into an empty wine bottle, which tottered and then fell towards the wooden floor. Tim screeched, he reached out with both hands to grab it, missed, and as the bottle shattered, his elbow caught the corner of a trestle table, which immediately collapsed, crashing down with about a tonne of computers and all the other equipment in an explosion of grinding metal and shattering glass. Two of the computer screens had been smashed to pieces. The other computers, which were still plugged in, short-circuited and exploded. Somehow the Alexa self-activated, and the opening bars of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony blasted out of the speakers before there was another shower of sparks and silence returned. The two of us stood there, paralysed. Do you think they heard us? Tim whispered. (laughs) It's really great. And actually, that was one of the quotes um, that I I picked up when I was reading through, uh, because humour works on many different layers in your story. And what we have there is a real auditory sense of humour. If you know Beethoven's Fifth, you immediately get the da-da-da-da. So it is working at the sense of, you know, of, of hearing. But it's auditory and it's visual and it's also mm. a character joke because Tim, of course, is a stupid detective. And so after this correct cacophony of sound, you can always see them. You're right. You're meant to be able to see it as well as hear it. You can almost see the see them standing there. You can hear the silence that follows all this. And then the gag, you know, being they heard us. Mm. And so it, it is. It's working on lots of different levels. Now, they're actually exploring the house of this missing man, um, Alistair Nightingale, who is also we think zebra um, with a small Z 
and a capital E. That's correct. Well, I think a lot of these, you know, Zebra is the, is the code name of a major computer hacker. This mm-hmm. book, which is interesting because the Diamond Brothers are largely quite old fashioned. The style of them is Raymond Chandler. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the inspiration for them, if you like. The, the, the joke of the books is, is they're narrated by a 14 year old kid, but he narrates them as if he's an adult in the style of Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. So you get this sort of Chandler esque world, which is quite old fashioned, quite golden age, with these two sort of ludicrous modern characters in it. But I'm also now investing the books with much more technology than the earlier books had. I remember the Falcons Malteser, for example, the technology in it all revolved around a barcode. And I wrote it so long ago that barcodes were actually quite cutting edge. Um, but nowadays, of course, we've moved on. So I'm having to update them a little bit. And that's why, you know, the, I think this chapter is called Rubber Duck. And I wonder how many of your listeners will know what a rubber duck is as applied to the world of computers. They might be thinking it's a yellow, yellow plastic thing that you have oh, on the side of the bar. <laughs> <laughs> um We must talk a little bit about the White Crusaders, because what I found really interesting was how incredibly funny the book is at the beginning. It's nearly all gags. You know, you're really propelled along at a considerable pace until you meet the real villains of the piece. I know you don't ever lose the humour, but it's quite chilling, I think. It moves, if you like, more away from sort of, you know, inane comedy into real adventure. I think, you know, the description of the crossing, would they have to do it at night in canoes from the edge of Scotland um, to this island, Hare Island. Uh, The humour is still there, but I agree with you, it does become more scary. I mean, it's meant to. I don't think it's it's where eagles dare. It's it's an action-adventure film, but I don't think there's anything in the book that would frighten or give a seven-year-old nightmares, because that's not what game I'm playing is. Um, At the same time, I hope there's plenty in the book for the 30- and 40-year-old teacher-stroke dad, mum, to enjoy two on a completely different level, you know, including the fact that the book is, in a way, a political satire. I mean, there is... You know, there are characters in there that, that might you might recognise. Yes, uh, I mean, I won't say anything about the initials of Neville Fairfax, for instance. <laughs> well, he for one. Um, <laughs> um, I would like to know a little bit about how the story came to be written and why you revisited the Diamond Brothers with so much else going on in your writing life. It's, I'm very glad you asked, because that in itself is a story. Um, what happened was, um, I started writing this book about 18 months ago, as I recall, maybe, maybe even a little longer. Um, and this was during COVID. Um, and I was aware of children being excluded from school, not being able to see their friends, not being able to have birthday parties unless they lived in 10 Downing Street, he added hastily, uh, and, and felt terribly sorry for them and sad. And so I had the idea that I would write something funny which I would post on my website, one chapter a week sort of thing, that then kids could follow and enjoy. And it was just just my little tiny, tiny contribution to what was happening and and to their world. So I think I wrote about seven or eight chapters over the period until COVID lockdown, that particular lockdown ended. And then sometime later, my publishers who had seen these chapters said, well, why don't you finish it and do it as a book? And I thought, well, yes, I would. And I'd I'd always said that, you know, when I posted on the website, it it was for nothing. There was no money exchange hands. And I thought, well, look, you know, with an NHS doing such fantastic work, I'll give the profits to the NHS as my contribution to to what was happening. Well, then I had second thoughts because 
I don't know how much money this book will make. I mean, you know, not, not, a, not a fortune, not enough to buy a new wing of a hospital or whatever. But after Major Tom had done his, his extraordinary walk and so much money had come into the NHS, I thought it was sort of slightly silly to add my threepence extra. So I decided, decided instead to, to, to give the money to a charity of which I'm a patron called Suffolk Homestart. I'm actually talking to you at this moment from Suffolk. It's an absolutely wonderful, small, extremely hardworking charity that, that if you like, works with the NHS because they do deal with a lot of mental health issues and, and physical health issues and depression and, and all sorts of things as well, as well as families in, in difficulties financially or, or, or a lot of children as well who, who have, you know, come through COVID with one issue or another. And this is just one book which is sort of, you know, for them rather than for me. Or for, for no, it is for me too. And it's for my readers too. But the money is for them. I think you enjoyed writing it. It certainly feels as though you enjoyed oh, writing it. I hadn't written with Diamond Brothers for something like nine or ten years, I think, or even maybe longer since the last Diamond Brothers book. And to come across them again, it's like meeting old friends in the street. You know, they, and you know, although Alex Ryder has been the making of me, I've always had a huge fondness for Nick Barrett. Mm. What I love about him is his insouissance. I love the way that the whole, you know, there can be bullets flying and, and, and steel girders falling off buildings. And at one stage, they're nearly drowned inside an office building. And But he never loses his sense of humour. He's always smiling. He's always positive. He He's always just wisecracking and getting on with it. He's a character I'm very fond of. Uh, in fact, um, the one character that was based on me, Tim Diamond, is me as I am. That's what when I wrote him, it was me, you know, this stupid, incapable, you know, trying so hard detective. And Nick Diamond was always me as I wish I was, young, clever, uh-huh. smart, solving it. So the two of them are sort of a composite of me. And, I, and I've always loved writing them, and I didn't think I'd come back to them. I was going, I, I, there was one other book I've been talking about, um, uh, The Radius of a Lost Shark, is a, is a book I've had in my head for a very long time, a title that makes me smile. But, but this, I don't know if it's going to be the last Diamond Brothers book, but it's lovely to see them back again. Brilliant. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about comedy and humour. I think it is gaining more appreciation in education circles, but I don't think it's always appreciated just how nuanced and clever the writing is. And I'd love to explore some of that with you. And the first one is really to do with character. You've said a bit about that already, uh, but this idea of partnerships so much comes out of the partnership and a lot of the comedy, the classic comedy that we see, Laurel and Hardy or Morecambe and Wise, is about two characters like your Diamond well, Brothers. I recall talking about Nick Diamond and Tim Diamond, but there is something incredibly endearing about them. You know, the fact that they are brothers, I think is great. The fact that they're always broke. They're both people I'd like to meet and spend time with. Tim is spectacularly dim, I mean, and stupid. Although some of his traits, as I've said, are mine. His inability to get a name right, for example. You know, he's introduced to Jane Nightingale, and within minutes he's calling her Jane Knight in jail. Mm. And then next she's Jane Hiking Trail. And it just keeps on going on and on and on. And, and, and I love all that. And, and Nick, who is just struggling and wants, in a way like Alex Ryder, just to have an ordinary life, is stuck with this complete bozo of an elder brother and just sort of goes along with the flow because he has no choice. Now, there is a lot dynamic between them but at the end of the day it is a warm dynamic you know you mentioned Morecambe and Wise and Laurel and Hardy it is the warmth in these partnerships I think that appeal to us Mm, that's really interesting the other thing that I really appreciate in your writing is the pacing of your jokes and I want to refer to one that comes fairly early on uh, in the book where they're talking about Bath 
the the punchline actually is that Bath doesn't need a plug. The thing about Bath is this, in any children's book, as soon as you mention Bath, you're going to get somebody talking about, you know, I was in Bath, well, didn't you have any clothes on or whatever, something like that. Bath is Bath. But in this instance, the joke is one removed from that because I think um, somebody says Bath is such a beautiful place, you should go there. And and Tim snaps, Bath doesn't need a plug. And the the joke is not just the Bath plug, it's it's the fact that plug is being used as a double entendre from plug to advertisement. And and so the joke makes makes me smile. Um, there is, I think, also a joke about in Bath where Tim gets confused about somebody being in water. But that that it's I'm not I I try in these books to write. Yeah, there are a lot of dad jokes in there. There are a lot of really stupid jokes. But I think there are some jokes in there that are really fun and and interesting. I'll tell you my favourite joke in in the yes. book. It's a character. One of the bad guys is described as having tattoos on his fingers and the tattoos say on one hand hate h-a-t-e and on the other hand vol v-o-l-e and tim says shouldn't that be love and the punchline is no he hates voles <laughs> and that to me is just is just a, i don't know how i thought of that joke and i hope i'm not sounding brash and arrogant in, in in quoting it and asking for a laugh but it made me smile when it came to me just tell me about that the plug joke again and the pacing of that and whether you started with the punchline and worked back from it or whether the punchline arose out of what you'd written before. When I'm writing with Diamond Brothers books, when I'm writing anything, I'm in the sea, I'm inside the book. I don't sit back and try and pluck a joke out of the sky. And I don't have a notebook in which I write jokes or I must use them. What happens is, is that I'm in there with Nick, with Tim, and somebody says something and immediately a joke, or not always, but often, a joke will come to mind. Something, something you know, whether it's somebody's name getting mistaken or, you know, I'm trying to, as I speak to you, to open a page at, um, uh, at, at Ransom. Um, but, um, oh, yeah, the, the Grannies. I mean, there's a, there's a joke in Grannies, not a particularly appropriate joke. Grannies is a restaurant somewhere other in London where everybody who works there is over the age of 80. It's a sort of, you know, it's, it's meant to be to sort of help people. And there's a joke that, that, that doesn't work for a lot of people, you say, but, the, but then it says that the, the barman shaking the, who's got, who, whose hands the barman's got such terrible shakes that he's brilliant at his job and that to me again it's not the best best joke in the book but it just sort of fell into my head that in a in a, in a restaurant where everybody is an octogenarian the, the person with, with the shakes is going to be the barman mm. with the cocktails and that made me laugh um and you know these that you know i am instantly even as i tell you that joke aware that that somebody might be offended by it you know to make jokes of old people to make jokes of disability which i'm i guess it is but but at the same time if there's one thing i believe it is that writers shouldn't be afraid we should be allowed to make jokes that are risky and risque you know obviously not not jokes that are disgusting or immoral or racist or whatever but i don't think we need to be constrained i think that you know anything goes as you've said, you're not above a dad joke as well. There is a point where there's no sign of zebra. And then I, I think Nick says, except for his underpants. I agreed. Where are they? You've just used them to blow your nose. I mean, that's that joke. I remember writing that. I don't like underpants jokes. I mean, Captain Underpants, I know, have been a huge hit for kids. And I've got nothing against those books. In my own work, I just don't like the easy laughs that come with underpants. Mm. The moment you mention underpants or or, or or poo or whatever, you know, that, it, that in very young children, it brings an automatic knee-jerk laugh. 
And I don't like that sort of easy humour. But that joke you just described is slightly funnier because the joke is the unexpected quality of it. You know, mm-hmm. where are his underpants? You've just blown your nose with them. It's a visual joke. And it's so Tim. It's a character joke because only Tim could pick up a pair of underpants in the belief that it was a handkerchief. The other visual joke that I like, and I, I, I don't know whether it's a reference to something that Laurel and Hardy might have done. I don't know if they had phones in those days, but where he picks up the phone and he's speaking into the wrong end of the phone. I love that bit as well. Yeah, again, I mean, that's very Tim. I mean, you know, the way he'll throw himself into a, a swivel chair when it's facing the wrong way and come crashing to the ground. So there's a lot of Buster Keaton-style humour in there. I mean, not so much, uh, you know, Laura and Hardy, as much as, as Buster Keaton. One of my great loves in cinema is Buster Keaton. And so maybe there's, a, you know, even in that joke I told you, all the stuff smashing down and the line, you know, you, know, heard, you can almost see that in a Buster Keaton film with the, do you think, you know, do you think anybody heard us, is the white caption at the end of that sequence. Do you remember the one where he's hanging from the water tank where they're about to refill the the train? General, yes, of course I remember it. I mean, it's a wonderful. The general is one of my favourite Buster Keaton films, and it's uh, and then the swing thing keeps swinging him around and he can't land, and it's it's you know he was he was a genius, and and I love the 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 humour of those films. And indeed, I think he broke his neck filming that. Why did I got his name Buster? Because he was always being thrown down the stairs by his parents, and somebody said, "I'm going to bust your neck if you're not careful," and he became Buster Keaton. I did not know that. It have been Patty Arbuckle who said that as well, another great comedian. Wow. Dialogue is funny too, and sometimes things come out of uh, the dialogue. And again, just really in awe of the pacing of a lot of it, where there was a conversation here. Hello, he said, may I ask who is speaking? Yes, you may, Tim replied. So who is speaking? Well, you are, said Tim. I love Tim's verbal humour. One of my favourite moments, again, my favourite joke in the book about Tim's um, line is, is that the, the head of the spy organisation is talking about Neville Fairfax's plans to destroy England. And he says, you know, if he got his hands on the whole computers and security network of a country, can you imagine what the result would be? And Tim replies, no, I, I can't. And just that, because when you say, can you imagine, it's a rhetorical question. But then Tim answers it. No, I can't imagine it. <laughs> it just, he's so stupid. It makes, you know, I love his, I love his, his inability to see that he is that stupid. He's, you know, he doesn't think he is. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get into trouble with this podcast because people are going to be saying, God, this guy sounds so pleased with himself. But normally I'm not. I'm a very nervous writer. I, you, know, I, I, you know, when a book of mine is coming out, I, I worry a lot that people, will they like it or not? But this one, I don't know. Because of the circumstances in which it was written, because it's a Diamond Brothers again, because I had such fun writing it, I am perhaps being a little bit too, um, too pleased with myself. And, I, and for that, I apologise. No, please be pleased with yourself because because I think you deserve it. And I wouldn't say that if I didn't think that. Um, Tell us a little bit, uh, without uh, giving away the plot, can you talk to us a little bit about pacing a story like this towards the, it's got a big chase at the end that it would fit into any adventure film, Alistair MacLean, James Bond, you know, that it's a really brilliant set piece. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the book is in, as you have said earlier in this conversation, has got its different sections. So the book begins with an investigation. This man has been kidnapped. That then takes him into danger when the this this gang of of motorbike sort of maniacs start chasing them with the the white the white uh, crusaders. And then the book, as it were, gets to the sort of you know the the evil lair, which is this island. And once on the island, they're effectively trapped, and everybody is an enemy. And so you are very much in the world of James Bond. It's sort of you know it's Blofeld in his castle. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and once I was there, you know, I although I think the humour does still keep up, I am much more interested in having a bit of real tension and real chases. And so when I, you know, yes, that, that chase at the very end where they're having to escape from the island and they take over an ice cream van and the music starts playing, the music from Star Wars, as I recall. So what you've got is you've got everything about a James Bond film except for the ludicrous nature of the vehicle playing Star Wars on those sort of chiming bells as all these characters. That doesn't, however, stop the sort of the violence and the action of the motorbikes getting swatted out of the way and coming off the road so it is a sort of a, a mixture of the two humor and 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 violence i mean you know the, the violence of a buster keaton film the violence of a, of a silent movie mm. do you know anthony it's a cracking good read you gave me a lot to smile about as i was reading it and it is a page turner i didn't put it down until i got to the end so i'd love to thank you so much for writing it and for talking to me today in the reading corner Nikki, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Walker Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.